Returning from sabbatical, one of the most common questions I receive is, did you go anywhere? It's a common and good question because many pastors spend their time away from their normal responsibilities in some interesting and exotic place like Cambridge or Spain. For me, however, most of my time away these past two months has been spent in my riding shed in my backyard, running and hiking at Rattlesnake Ridge, or sitting in my cozy blue chair with a book in my hands and a cat in my lap. I did take two journeys, however, one to a Benedictine monastery in eastern Oklahoma, where I had the chance to sit in for a day with the monks' rhythm of chanting the psalms in Latin, no less, from 5.30 in the morning to 8 at night with a few breaks for meals and other work between. And then just a couple of weeks ago, my family made the journey to Big Bend National Park. Of all the possible places to go, there was something about the desert wilderness that animated my imagination. My family knew that we wanted to go some, to some wild place, somewhere we could camp, and it would also be mostly warm. But while a trip to the southern coast would have certainly sufficed, I longed for the sparse and remote landscape of the southwest. Big Bend was the perfect destination to fulfill that longing. A vast expanse of mountains and deserts with plants and animals that are unlike anything in Arkansas. And though the park is popular, especially in February, the fact, that fact did not diminish our chance to find profound silence. On our daily hikes, there were many moments when we were completely alone on the trails, and the signs reminding us of bears and mountain lions didn't help there. And there we found no sound, not even a plane going overhead, just a distant canyon rim calling. At night, Big Bend is one of the darkest places in North America. The stars were so bright that we could see and walk around just by their light alone. It was a wonderful place to go, but the irony is that in order to get there, we had to drive over 13 hours along congested highways, burning through gasoline and eating the often nutrient-sparse offerings of the interstate exits. It was an often harried experience. We had to drive through Dallas at rush, close to rush hour, for instance, and distracted drivers wandered into our lane while the DVD player in the back that was supposed to provide some cure for the boredom of confinement for my daughters often was malfunctioning at every turn. 
Emily and I tried to listen to a beautiful book about the desert fathers and the soundscapes of the, the, of the wilderness, but we mostly gave up, having to compete with the robotic voice of Google Maps and Tangled from the back seat. Out the window, we saw as we drove towering trash dumps that stood above the otherwise flat landscape, and more plastic bags than, tangle, than uh, tumbleweeds stuck in the fences. Rusted oil pumps churned like galloping steel horses, bringing up the energy-rich deposits of the Permian Basin. Much of that land was at one time a short grass prairie on which the cattle that fed a generation grazed. But after years of abuse, it is turning to desert. By the time we pulled into our campsite, cradled in the Chisos Basin, we were more than ready to get out of our car and live for a few days a different kind of life. In a way, our journey to the desert echoes the contrast at the heart of our scriptures this morning. We began with our lesson from Genesis and that archetypal story of the first human beings. There, the Adam, the humus being, formed by God from the earth, is put in the garden with the command to till and keep it. Or, as a better translation might put it, to serve and preserve the creation. That was the first call of human life, the old story tells us, to work towards the flourishing and integrity of all creation. But humanity became distracted and enamored by another possibility. There was a power that was available to them. If only they stepped out of their calling of serving and preserving for a moment. With this power, they were promised they would be like gods. Maybe they even rationalized with themselves and thought that they could do so much more serving and preserving if only they had these godlike powers. We know that kind of compromise for the greater good. And of course, we know the truth of this story in no small part because it has repeated itself in every generation. Human history is littered with the projects of those persons and nations, powers and institutions that have sought to be like gods, often enough under the guise of some goodness. And usually those projects do achieve something of godlike powers, but it is in part, not in whole. The result is that we have knowledge without wisdom, power without compassion, desire without fidelity. You will die 
was the warning of such a betrayal of our creaturely purpose and limits. In death, the wasting away of our personhood, our fullness and flourishing, and indeed of all creation, has been the result. Thankfully, our scriptures don't end there. We also heard from Paul, who wrote to the church in Rome that God had provided a new Adam, a new archetype for what human life could be, which is another way of saying that God provided another path and possibility for human life. This Adam was Jesus, who, though fully God, did not answer the call of the old temptation to be like a god in the model of our human imaginations. Instead, Jesus took on the fullness of a truly human life, experiencing all of its fragility and lack, its vulnerability and poverty and dependence. In his life, he showed what it really means to be like God, and that that is found in humility and steadfast love and compassion and grace. He created a path for us to be fully human like him, where we too could be joined into the new family of God and united with the divine through God's life of grace. It was in the wilderness that Jesus demonstrated his complete dependence upon God, and thus that he was a fully human being. It was in the wilderness, then, that the devil shows up to Jesus with all of the usual temptations of human life. Evil, it turns out, is not all that creative. And each of the devil's offers offer something that gets at the heart of the necessities of every human life, what the monastic Thomas Keating has named as the need for security and survival, power and control, affection and esteem. If any of us are to flourish as human beings, we need each of these things. But the problem comes when we try to secure them for ourselves apart from the grace of God and beyond the limits of creation. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness with the intention of being tempted by the devil. His purpose at the very beginning of his ministry was to face the test at the very heart of human life. And in preparation for this, the whole 40 days before, while Jesus was living apart from the noise and activity of ordinary life, as he fasted and prayed for extended time, he was preparing for this encounter with temptation. Jesus, human and therefore fragile, needed spiritual disciplines in order to prepare for the temptations that he knew would come as they come for all of us one way or another. Since the temptations Jesus faced are common to human life, 
His disciplines can also offer some guidance for our own resistance. It was in solitude and fasting that he learned to be dependent upon God. It is with solitude and fasting that we, too, can learn that dependence. Solitude might be defined as freedom from the influence of other human minds. In that space, we are able to listen to our own hearts and hear within us the quiet voice of God that is always present, like the humming of the very earth itself, which is often drowned out by our machine world. And in fasting, we learn that the fulfillment of our basic biological need for food can be put on hold for a moment so that we can discern the true nature of our hungers and our more fundamental need for God's grace in our lives. Finally, when Jesus, prepared by solitude and fasting, encounters the devil full on, he answers him by quoting scripture. It's clear that Jesus has spent a lifetime of reading and meditating upon God's word that he had memorized it and made it a part of himself. The memorization of scripture is a powerful tool in our spiritual growth, and it's one that I admit that I do far too little of. But this season of Lent offers us an opportunity of focus in which we can take on such memorization as a practice. When we memorize the scriptures, God's word literally becomes a part of our bodies as neurons are rearranged and new connections are made within our brains. In my family's time in the desert and through my whole life of Sabbath over these past two months, I've been reminded again and again of the joys and gifts of a human life in its fullness. Eventually, though, the time in the wilderness ends. If we have lived through that desert time well, if we have fasted from the frantic efforts to be our own gods and rooted ourselves in the presence of our Father, living from God's grace and meditating on God's word, then we will be able to continue our own journey of incarnation, our own path of learning from Jesus how to be truly human once again. May this be a journey we all embark on through this season of Lent. For the world is in need of human beings made fully alive by following the humble path of Jesus. Amen.